son. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had had and traveled to a distant country where he had squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country. He had nothing. Then he went to work for one of, for one of the citizens of that country he, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against the heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and him, and with his filled compassion, he ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against the heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told the servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and his sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older brothers, his, now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and questioned what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has, he has come back safe and sound. Then he became angry and he didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed you. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. And, but when the son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Good work. Awesome job. Awesome job. Well, again, all the dads here today, happy Father's Day. And we want to uh, also recognize a very special dad, a dad of Life Center, and that's Pastor Jason, our lead pastor. Uh, today, and we're not just celebrating that it's Father's Day, we're also celebrating the fact that he is, uh, we're recognizing that it is his 15th year anniversary as lead pastor of Life Center. 15 years he has led us as just a faithful shepherd. And so on this 15th anniversary and on this Father's Day, we as a church, we've gifted him. Uh, do we have the pictures there of what we've gifted him? Is it there? No, no, next service? Okay, next service. We've gifted him as a church. Uh, we've a license plate that says grow people, uh, G-R-O-W-P-P-L. Yeah, people. Grow people. And then we also got him for the back of his Jeep a wheel cover with the LifeStrong heart. So pretty cool. We think he'll like that. We're surprising. They're surprising him with those gifts this morning in Orleans. So, yeah, oh, there it is. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> That's so cool. Grow people. Is that Photoshopped or is that real? 
I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I think that might be photoshopped. I don't know. But that's where we're getting them. So, all right. So, well, you know, because it's Father's Day, I want to do something a little bit different, something that I've, I don't think I've ever done before, and that's speak directly to the men in the house today and the men online. And of course, this message is for everyone. It always is for everyone. But I want to encourage and challenge the men in here this morning, including myself, because men, here's the deal. We have a very special call of God on our life. And that call that we have as men is to be image bearers and sons of God who have been entrusted with power and responsibility to create, cultivate, care, and defend for the glory of God and the good of others. And when we are taking intentional steps to live out that call, everyone benefits. Do you agree? I think that there, and let me, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think there's no one in this room who agrees with that more than the women in this room, right? That when men are taking steps to fulfill their God-given call, everyone benefits. Isn't that right? So I want to speak to the men here today, brother to brother, because Lord knows I'm nowhere near an expert or even qualified at all to say, you know, this is what you need to do. But brother to brother, I want to speak to the men because I believe in you today and I believe in the calling that you have on your life. And I recognize as someone with three boys myself, who are soon going to begin the process of emerging into adulthood, that I actually need you men to model for them what it is to be a man of God. Because I recognize that as a father, there may be a season where, yes, I will continue to be the primary influence, but they're not always going to look at their dad. And because I remember what it was like to go through that season myself and think, oh, my dad is a man of God for sure. No, they're going to need you, and I'm going to be needing you, and perhaps you're going to be needing me. And so we all are in this together. And so my question to the men in the room is this. Do you know the call of God on your life? Do you know the call that God has placed on your life to become not just a man, but a man of God? And do you know the steps that are needed to take, that you need to take to live out that call? You know, I realize I'm speaking to different generations, different groups of men. Maybe you're a young man here today, and and that next step for you is just needing to put away childish habits, childish ways. Maybe you're a middle-aged man who, you know, you are very tempted in this season of life to sort of put life on cruise control. Maybe put your marriage, put your your, your parenting on cruise control, and your next step is not just to drift through these next years, but to intentionally lead your family And maybe you're an older man in his senior years, and your next step is to finish the race well. You know, it's staggering when you actually look at the statistics, how very few are finishing well. And so we need men to finish well and become mentors and demonstrate that to us younger men that you can finish the race well and to help pass on that wisdom to a younger generation that is desperately in need of wisdom. Now, I do realize, though, that by speaking to the men and the call that they have on their lives today, I may or may not be about to step onto a cultural minefield of convoluted and distorted, you know, views of what a man is or isn't. But the unfortunate truth is, is that many men today are struggling. They're struggling because they're carrying around the pain of unhealed wounds from their own childhood you know, they are, they are isolated and they are lonely and they're missing a brotherhood, a group of men who are journeying together in life and spurring one another on towards that same mission, that same purpose. 
And too many men, and especially young men, are, do not, are not realizing that they are failing to realize that they have a call to be this image bearer, to be a son of God, because God has entrusted them with a great amount of spiritual authority and responsibility. And like the parable that my son read this morning, they're not realizing that by failing to discover and discern the call of God on their life, they be men of God, that they are squandering their inheritance. You know, they are being robbed of the Father's blessing. And you know, the parable that we've read this morning is not just a, a clever story Jesus told about a man with two sons. It's more than that. It's an invitation. It's a call that whether you are more like the younger son who prone and tends toward being rebellious, and wanting to wander far off from home. Or maybe you're more like the older son in the story who is filled with a pride heart and self-made righteousness. That whoever you are in the story, the call in your life is to reject those tendencies of your flesh and ultimately to become like the father in the story. Father who is compassionate, merciful, you know, patient, wise, generous. You know, Paul said to the Corinthians that when he was a child, he talked like a child, he thought like a child, he reasoned like a child, but when he became a man, he put those childish things away. And so men, consider this parable, the call that Jesus is making to you to set aside the childish ways of your hearts. And instead of being like the sons in the story that we just read, to become like the father. Now, of course, you know, Jesus is not telling a parable about a man with two sons. Just by, he's just saying, I'm going to speak to you about manhood, you know, cultural manhood and biblical manhood. You know, that's not what Jesus was doing. No, Jesus was addressing a very specific audience who was asking a very specific question when he told this story. And the question is, if you read the very beginning of Luke chapter 15, it tells you Jesus is being asked by the Pharisees, why do you, specifically you being Jesus, who represents the Father in the story, do you fellowship and welcome sinners and eat with sinners? Those sinners being represented by, of course, the younger son in the story. And this question is being asked by the the so-called righteous Pharisees and scribes who Jesus casts in this story as the older son. And the answer to why Jesus eats with sinners and he fellowships with them is that because of that is the Father's heart towards sinners. The Father's heart is, is when he sees all sorts of people who are lost, his heart cannot help but run towards them. His heart cannot help but open up his arms and to welcome them and to forgive and to be merciful and more than that, to throw a party when they come home and celebrate their return. And he sees all sorts of people at lost, but the thing is about lost people, at least they know that they're lost. The problem with this is that the older son who never leaves home is, if not more so, is lost than the younger son because he has no idea of how lost he really is, just how the Pharisees had no idea how lost they truly were in God's eyes. So if you allow me today to look at this parable through another lens, a more modern lens, what I see in this parable is that there are two sons who really embody the sort of man that our culture embraces. You know, there are archetypes of what a a man is or a man, you know, is supposed to be. You know, first you have a younger son, 
A son who demands that his father pay out his inheritance now rather than later so he can go and squander his father's hard-earned money on reckless living. And though we're not told specifically in this parable what he spent his money on, remember every story has its limitations. The older son later on gives us an idea of the sort of things that the younger son wanted his father to pay him out for so he could spend his money on. It was reckless living, we are told. The idea of the younger son is that he wanted to live a life, a life that our world deeply values, a life of self-fulfillment and living out your own sort of truth, so to speak. And in this way of living, there is no desire of the flesh that should be withheld or suppressed from you. It rejects any father's desire to constrain his son, to put any sort of moral restraint, knowing that there are two paths, one that is wide and many walk, but it is a path that leads to destruction. And he wants to restrain his son because he knows that there is another path, the path that he needs to be led onto, a narrow path, the path that very few take, but it is the path that ultimately leads to life. You see, it wasn't just the prodigal son who was, you know, the first to squander his father's inheritance on reckless living. The first man to ever do so was, in fact, the first man, Adam, who failed in his responsibilities with God and with others. You know, God called Adam to be a man of God, a man of God who stewarded and took care of his creation. But instead, Adam chose to reject the father's call on his life because of two reasons. And those reasons were rebelliousness and laziness. What Adam wanted was what every sinful heart wants. One, to live independent from God and his authority. And number two, to have heaven on earth according to my own terms of what heaven looks like. And so many men today, I look at many men, we are struggling. Men are struggling to fall under that same trap that the serpent sent for Adam. That instead of stepping into that God-given call to be caretakers and stewards of God's creation, they're squandering their God-given responsibility by choosing to have heaven on earth independent from God's authority. But if this path, the path that Adam walked, left him naked and ashamed and banished from the garden, and the path that the younger son walked on, a path that left him, you know, sitting in a pig pen eating the food that the pigs ate, where do you think that a life of living only for yourself and your desires is going to lead you? You know, men, and I'm sure this applies to everyone, don't squander your inheritance on reckless living. Pornography is reckless living. You know, sex outside of marriage is reckless living. Sins of laziness like sloth, greed, or lust is reckless living. And I know we all have our struggles, don't we? You know, men especially. We have our struggles, I get that. But the beginning of stepping into your God-given call, that call of God on your life to be a man of God, is to recognize that these things are not just wrong. They're squandering your blessing. Like it's squandering your inheritance. You know, the blessing of intimacy. If you're a man yet to be married, it's the blessing of future intimacy. Or, or if you're married now, the blessing of present intimacy. You know, the blessing of contentment. The blessing of living for something greater than yourself. 
So you've got this one son then living for the life that our culture, you know, embraces and celebrates. It's self-expression, self-gratification, momentary pleasure in exchange for uh, long-term blessing and inheritance. Maybe you recognize yourself in that younger son. You know, the beautiful thing about this parable is that really like all of who we are is found in, in one of these two sons. But then you got this other side of the coin, so to speak, of cultural manhood. And that's what the elder son in the story represents. You know, it's, which represents, you know, self-made success. You know, you don't need to squander your father's inheritance because you, you, you don't need your father's inheritance. You've built your own inheritance. You know, you're successful. You've built a fortune of wealth based on your works, your accomplishments. You know, you're rich. You're successful. All the ladies love you. All the guys want to be you like you. The best example I could think of is Harvey Specter from Suits. Yeah, you're nodding your head maybe in agreement. Yeah, he seems like a pretty cool guy. Now I get I'm playing a little bit loose here with the elder son in the story. But it's true, isn't it? Our culture loves this sort of man, this self-made man. But don't be fooled by the outward success of this sort of man because while the elder son never leaves the father's house and he works hard, he's this outward model of a, of a good son, he is just as lost and as distant from his father as the younger brother is who is living off in a land far away. And for that reason, and this is the point Jesus is making, Jesus is speaking to the elder sons in this parable that the elder son is actually, and doesn't even know it, but is in great spiritual danger. Because at least the younger son comes to the recognition that he's lost. At least he recognizes that there's somewhere better to go. But the elder son doesn't realize it because he feels no pain. He feels no regret. There's no recognition that he is anything but better and more deserving than his younger brother. He is a man not trapped by rebelliousness, but self-made righteousness. He's not relieved to hear his brother has come home safe and sound, party being thrown in his honor. You know, he's threatened by it. And he's angered at the thought of, of his father's heart towards his brother. Why? Why did the older son, why does it say he was so angry at what his father was doing? You know, because ultimately the elder son thought he knew better than his father. He thought he knew better. Men don't run. Fathers don't run to their lost sons. That image of a father running in, in this first century Palestine was, was a scandal of all scandals. First of all, you don't run. The way a man would walk, you know, would, would indicate his sort of status. Men would often walk slow in that day. You know, the slower you walked, the more proud and the more well-off you were. You know, men didn't show their legs, but to run because of the length of the robes, the father would have to lift up his robes and run, exposing his legs. It's just this image of a, sca of a scandal. Men don't kill the finest animal for those least deserving. They give it to the one most deserving. Men don't forgive like that, and they especially never forget. You know, you see, the problem with the elder son is that while he does everything the right way, and, the, you know, the, the way our culture believes that a man should live, you work hard, you go to work, you know, you earn, you, you, get, you provide, you show up, you succeed. And it's not that there's anything really wrong with those sorts of things. I mean, I'm, 
I, of anyone. I believe work hard, earn, you know, succeed, give your best. It's not that there's anything wrong. It's just that a man of God is not defined by his works, but by the relationship that he has with his eternal father. It's relationship that makes the man a man of God. Not your works, not your successes, not your diploma on the wall, your paycheck, how big your house is, what kind of your car you drive with. If you're not with the Father, then you're lost, no matter how found your culture tells you that you are. And so while the elder son stays outside the house while the younger son is inside and everyone in, them, in there is celebrating, is because he did not know the Father. He did not know the Father because if he did know the Father, then he would be doing what the Father did. He would be sharing and embodying the Father's heart towards his Son. And so, everyone, men, friends, here lies the answer to our question. What is a man of God? What is the spiritual calling that every man in this room has placed on their life? And the answer is to become like the Father, to become like the Father. I want to read to you Colossians chapter 3, some verses from Colossians chapter 3. And as I read you these verses, I want you to think about the parable that we just discussed and that we've just read. I want you to think about the sons and imagine, imagine yourself. And then I want you to imagine the Father in the story that we read as I read you these verses. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore. Put to death whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. And then later on in verse 12 to 15, it says this. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. You know, man, can I encourage you to highlight that verse in your Bible, screenshot it, memorize it, imprint it on your heart, because right there in Scripture, it is giving you the blueprint of what it does it mean to be a man of God. Put to death childish, sinful behavior. Put to death what the younger two sons represent. Crucify the sinful parts of your manhood, the parts of your manhood that come from the flesh, and instead put on the Christ-like parts of being a man. Compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, and so on and so on. You know, when it comes to being a man of God, there's really just one example that we should really look to and say, that is what the picture of a man of God is, and that is Jesus Christ. You know, I know that there, in Christian circles, have been conversations and books written about biblical manhood and, and biblical womanhood, and I would caution you all to be careful around that, using that kind of language. Biblical manhood. What is a biblical man? I mean, Solomon was a biblical man, wasn't he? <laughs> and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
Is that what we should deduce as being an example of biblical, of biblical man? I don't think so. The answer is no, if you're wondering. <laughs> yeah, there's principles. We can deduce principles from men, but every man and biblical man is a man that has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, except for one man, the perfect man, and that is Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus was and is the perfect man because he was and is the most perfect human. He lived a sinless life, and he lived a life in perfect obedience to the Father. And the term Father was not just a term he used to describe, this is how you know what God is like. He is like a father. It was, it was more than that. Fatherhood was a, a sacred vocation and responsibility that God entrusted to his people. And so when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, or in the Eastern tradition, it's described as the parable of the loving father. You can choose whatever title you, uh, you will. He's more than just illustrating who God was. Jesus is illustrating to them who he is. I am like the father in the story. You know, we, we sometimes forget. We look at the parable and we think, that's what God is like. And yes, absolutely, that is what God's like. But we know that's what God is like because that is who Jesus was like. Jesus says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Jesus is the one who embodies the Father's hearts, who, who welcomes sinners, who fellowships with them because he is a, a merciful God and he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. And Jesus will patiently wait when somebody is lost and he patiently waits for them to come home because he is patient with us, not wanting anyone, not wanting a single person on earth. Think about that. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Yet he, at the same time, he's not afraid to go running in their direction when a lost sinner wants to come home. He will seek and he will find the lost because that is what a father does. And so if Jesus is the most perfect example of what a man of God is, and he saw the highest calling of a man being like a father, here lies your spiritual calling, men, as image bearers and sons of God. For you to be like a father. Not in the natural, physical sense of the word, right? Like, it's not like the, the highest calling is then to have kids. Jesus wasn't a father in the natural, physical sense. You know, Jesus didn't have any children. Jesus was never married. Yet he embodies perfection in both as a father and as a, as a faithful husband would be. Jesus is perfect in every way. And so we, we look at Jesus and we heed his call to become fathers in the spiritual sense of the word. You know, every son, whether your heart here today, and, and, and be honest with yourself. Are you prone to wandering and rebelliousness? Are you prone to thinking you are at home and not recognizing that your heart is filled with spiritual pride? You are called to put off those childish ways and to put on Christ. You know, Father is really a perfect example, I think, of, of a spir the spiritual calling we carry because fatherhood speaks to two things. It speaks to authority and responsibility. Authority and responsibility with God's most precious treasure, that is his people. And so I love the, the metaphor of a father because it's a perfect example of, of God-given authority and responsibility. And so what I want to do today is just leave you with, with some encouragement, men. 
and by answering, trying to answer the question, how does the son then become like the father? How do, how, do, how do young sons of God grow up to become like fathers? And I recognize not everyone's path is the same. You know, we all come from different backgrounds. We all carry, you know, different wounds, woundedness, and we have different experiences, some good, some not so good. But I want to borrow from the book that we gifted Corey today, The Intentional Father by John Tyson. Because in this book, he suggests that there are six roles that a man must step into in order to fully become a man of God. And in the book, he is speaking to fathers, raising sons, and he's saying, Dads, these are the roles you need to instill into your sons. You need to teach your sons so that they can grow up to be, to be men, to be men of God. But I think it applies equally to us sons of God here who are growing up to be like fathers. Six roles. And I want you to consider what roles are you already wearing and which roles are ones you need to step into more fully. The first is this, a disciple. A disciple. I begin with a disciple because if you men are not stepping into your role as a disciple, it doesn't matter what else you are doing. It all starts right here for every man. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so if you want to become like a father, the very best way for a son to become like a father is to follow closely and submit to his own father's teachings. You know, men, what sort of disciple are you? Do you have a firm grasp on some of the most important matters of the faith? Can you tell me what is, who is God? Who are you? Who am I? What is the gospel? You know, what are the spiritual practices needed to become more like Jesus? And so, men of God, I call on you to become disciples, to grow closer to God your Father by following ever so closely to Jesus. Number two, every man of God needs to be a lover. Now, after growing, after stepping into the role of disciple, a man of God needs to be a lover who unconditionally loves the people whom God has entrusted into his care. And men, if that means loving a woman, it's understanding her beauty and wonder and knowing how to honor and respect her dignity because she is not beneath you nor subservient to you, but God has made you both image bearers and co-laborers and equal partners in the kingdom of God. You can clap for that if you'd like. <laughs> and if that's your children, then it's not being an armchair father who works hard at work and then comes home and is lazy on the couch. You know, you need to, if you're not winning at home, men, when it comes to your love, then you're not winning at all, period. So men of God, I'm calling on you to be kind and tenderhearted. To be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving and loving those in your care as God in Christ has forgiven and loved you. Number three, every man of God needs to be a leader. Now, that doesn't need, mean you need to be a general in the army going into battle or a, a CEO of a company. But a leader is one who understands the influence and authority God has entrusted to you and stewards that influence and authority in a way that honors Christ. You know, Robert Lewis wrote in his book, Raising a Modern Day Knight, he gives a definition of what a man is, but I think it happens to be a great example of what a leader is. It says, a man accepts responsibility, rejects passivity, leads courageously, and lives for a greater reward. And so men today, I call you to do exactly that. Accept responsibility and reject passivity. Don't live for the applause of man. Live for a greater reward. 
Number four is a warrior. A man of God is a warrior. Yes. And that's not like paint on your face charging into battle. A man of God is someone who does what is right, who seeks justice, defends the oppressed, takes up the cause of the fatherless, pleads the case of a widow. What men need is a cause worth fighting for. You know, John Tyson says this, a cause is bigger than a vision, more expansive than a strategy, and more long-lasting than a season. It's larger than a fight. And why men are struggling today, so many men are struggling, is because they're lacking that, a cause. A cause worth fighting for. And what men are doing is they are looking for substitutes. That if you don't give me a cause worth fighting for uh, in in the natural sense, they go looking for it in, in another sense, in a digital sense. And they will substitute and find a substitute which gives them that same adrenaline rush and that sense of accomplishment. It doesn't matter if it's online or in real life. They will go looking for it because every man needs a cause. So men of God, I call on you to find a cause greater than yourself. To see a warrior as someone who is, rather than being physically tough, you are spiritually resilient to be strong and to stand up for those who are weak, to be men who act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Fifth, and I'm almost done, is brother. At the, every, at the heart of every man of God is a brother. And that is the knowledge on how to live in community with others. And by living in community, I'm not talking about just throwing a great barbecue. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'll buy a Traeger and I'll smoke some ribs and no. It's, can you forgive? Can you confront in love? Can you reconcile? Can you build something? You know, another reason, this is another reason why so many men are struggling, is that they're isolated. They're lonely. Loneliness is an epidemic among men. And I'm sure the last two years hasn't helped. But men of God here in the room, I'm calling you to seek out friends who will lift you up to become a brotherhood, not just a group of guys that you go out for wings once a month, but a brotherhood that says, man, we're going to champion one another because we're all heading down the same direction. We have the same purpose in mind. And then sixth, and I'll close with this, is the role is wise, a wise man. I know this sounds really, really brash, but we live in a culture of fools. And we, men, are, men of God, need to learn how to be wise. You know, spiritual fathers are wise, aren't they? You know, wise in stewarding their time, wise in navigating career choices, wise in navigating which relationships to embrace and which to leave behind. And so, men of God, today I'm calling you to grow in wisdom, to seek out mentors who will help instill in you the knowledge you need for that next season. You know, young men need mentors who are just ahead of them, who can help them in that journey of becoming fathers and husbands. And fathers and husbands need mentors of the next generation who are a little bit beyond that, you know, to help them into that next season. So we need mentors to help us to put aside childish things. Men, put away childish things that are a waste of time. Spend your time wisely on things that add value that help build the kingdom of God. And so in closing today, when I look at all these roles, disciple, lover, leader, warrior, brother, a wise man, I see the father in our story today. Do you? But more importantly, who I see is I see Jesus. 
and Jesus sees you. The man you were made to be, an image bearer and son of God, who has the spirit of Christ, the perfect man, the perfect human, living in you to guide you to be the sons and image bearers you were made to be. Thank you.